New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Willis Barnstone is a poet, translator, biblical scholar, literary critic, memoirist, anthologist, teacher, and painter. If we are to grasp his great contribution to culture over the course of his professional life, we could focus on his role first and foremost as a poet, a lover of sacred words. Willis Barnstone is former O'Connor Professor of Greek at Colgate University, Distinguished Professor of Comparative Literature at Indiana University, a Guggenheim Fellow, and winner of numerous literary awards, including the Emily Dickinson Award, the Lannan and W.H. Auden Awards. He is a prolific translator of the Greek lyric poets, a new historical version of the New Testament, and poets as diverse as Sappho, Rilke, Borges, Machado, Wang Wei, and John of the Cross. At last count, Willis Barnstone's life work amounts to over 75 books, and yet there are several more emerging from his protein imagination in 2015 alone. To read his bibliography, it's like reading the card catalog from the ancient Alexandrian library. His past works include With Borges on an Ordinary Evening in Buenos Aires, The Politics of Ecstasy from Sappho to Borges, The Poetics of Translation, The Apocalypse, The Gnostic Bible, A Book of Women Poets from Antiquity to Now with his daughter Aliki Barnstone. New works include The Poems of Jesus, The Poets of the Bible, and next year, Mexico in My Heart. Join us for the next hour as we explore the protein imagination of Willis Barnstone. I am Phil Cousineau. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Willis, welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. Last fall, I found myself in a weaving factory outside of Rumi's hometown, Konya, in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And I remember being dazzled by how many threads the weavers could keep track of as they wove those gorgeous Turkish carpets. I had that image in mind while I was reviewing your work for this interview, and the overlap was the amount of threads that the weavers have to keep track of, and I'm wondering if that's an image for you with all of the work you're doing in memoir, translation, poetry. Mm -hmm. Are there many threads, or is there one thread that goes through all of your work? Yes, I, I think there is, and I think it's the poetic word, or I'd like to think the poetic word is this, 
is a, perhaps a synonym for the philosophical word, the metaphysical word, the mystical word, the secular word, anything you can fill that abstraction with, especially things rather than abstractions. What I find extraordinary about your career is what we might call a kind of binocular vision. You're seeing the world through your own eye, writing your own work, your mm -hmm. essays, your criticism, mm -hmm. your poetry, and yet you seem to always have your mind on other writers. I love one line you have where you write, I, I wear a wedding band, reading in gold, do not forget the ancients. What do you mean by that arresting phrase? Gosh, I don't remember it at all, but I'm very happy to be have it attributed to my thought at one point. I I feel I remember that Auden said if we forget the past, I guess many people did, we have a bleak future. Uh, the poets of the past and today and the future are my best friends. We talk. I don't mean in a mysterious way. I feel we're close. I'd love to speak to them in reality, but just the fact that they're there, I keep rereading them. They change all the time because our eyes change when we read. And I think we would be, we'd hit it fine. I love to go out on a date with Sappho, for example. Would you mind reading something from your own work right now? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll do so. Here's a poem called The Good Beasts. On the first morning of the moon, in land under the birds of Ur, before the flood dirties the memory of a couple banned from apples and the fatal fire of blood, Adam and Eve walk in the ghetto park, circling a tree, they do not know the way to make their bodies shiver in the spark of fusion, cannot read or talk, and they know night and noon, but not the enduring night of nights that has no noon. Adam and Eve, good beasts, live the morning of the globe, are blind like us to apocalypse. They probe the sun, death ray, on the red tree. Its light rages, illiterate, until they leave. You could have written down some of those thoughts in prose, but you didn't. You wrote it in verse. Yes. What's the difference? Nothing. We overhear our thoughts when we write. Sometimes, as the Chinese say, we overhear them formally. Otherwise, we don't. The difference between that and most prose is that it's, it's more carefully chosen. It's more metaphorical. I prefer to let a thing represent, represent an idea than an idea represent a thing. Do you recommend that people in ordinary life read poetry? I could say something dire and say if they don't, they'll perish. But it's true today. Everybody listens to their earphones hearing poetry, rather old-fashioned rhyming ones, all day long. They have no clue whatsoever 
what poetry is is that they're listening to it, but poetry keeps them going. Poetry is creation. Poetry is a focus. Poetry is a concentration. But I love fiction. I love many things. Well, I love the notion that the word itself, being a word hound, yes. loving word origins, comes from poesis, which simply means to make in Greek. To make, right? yes. There's something so elemental about yes. that. When, yeah. when we write a poem, we're making something. We're crafting something that didn't actually exist five minutes ago. Yes. Well, it's true to make. To in The first thing that was made was the universe with the word let's make light <laughs> and so with two words and it was the best poem in the world let there be light it's only two words in in hebrew yeah. it's 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 beautiful the notion of creation but we tend to make it a little soupy but for me it never is soupy it's always true it is so deathly possible for me to go into a creative mood. I have to stop it so I can eat or do something else. Well, it is life. It is for me. It's life, yeah. I believe it was Descartes who said, um, reading is like talking to men of other centuries. Oh. And that's how I have felt reviewing some of your work, the, the vast amount, not only of your own poetry output, but the range of people that you've translated. Yes. Do you, how do you put yourself into the, a mood to translate one year in Spanish with Machado, another year of the German with Rilke? Do you have to set I, I, the mood? I'm a kind of monkey. I, I always knew I was, my mother liked monkeys, and I became one, I guess, because of her. Uh, I, I have a good ear for languages. I pick up accents quite natively, in that sense I'm childlike, pre-adolescent, you might say. And, and, and I, 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 I have a book, which I hope will come out, uh, of about 150 pages, in the voice of other poets. So I'm able to be a mimic in that sense. And it gives me tremendous opening of the mind not to be myself. And there is no self that keeps, you know, if you put yourself in a pound of light, you can't put it together. No, self is, is always moving and changing. And I'm very happy to, to be Mr. Change rather than Mr. Still. There's something else that I detect in your work as well. Mm, yes. And it's this deep respect for the sanctity of words, language, getting yes. words and names yes. right. So when I read recently your new book, The Poems of Jesus, of course, the title is striking. Yeah. I, like most people, hadn't thought of him as a poet. And yet when I read the introduction to the book, I see that you feel that we misread and misheard the New Testament all of these centuries, and you seem to have felt deeply compelled mm. to finally get it right. Why? Yes. Well, because we're crazy. We, we, we're so partisan when we read anything which is scripture that we, we lose our eyesight. I mean, uh, if you believe in Jesus, it doesn't really matter one way or the other, uh, whether he's a com combinatory person or uh, whenever, but the texts are there. 
And the text mainly derived from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, He only spoke in wisdom verse. There's virtually nothing attributed to him which is not wisdom verse. And so he is one of the great poets. I did leave out the the angry, the militant Jesus because it it pissed me off, or or pisses me off, I should say more correctly. Uh, But he's one of the great poets, and so is Isaiah, so is Paul, so is the anonymous John of Patmos who gave us the Apocalypse, that is the book of Revelation, which is the epic poem of the world. In that book, the, the poems of Jesus, you have a, an extremely arresting line for me, that you wanted to wipe away the trappings of prose and reveal the text to be stunning gospel poetry. Yes. Can you expand on that? Well, you, you see, all the poets, sorry, not prose was a very late invention. All early writing was in verse. Probably because it came in song, you can memorize verse more easily than prose. And in the old days, any scripture in any religion was chanted. Nothing was read and usually memorized because most of the time the chances were illiterate and passed on. But yes, prose is a question of topography as Borges said. Marvelous. I'm speaking with Willis Barnstone, poet, religious scholar, editor extraordinaire. He has published such classics as Ancient Greek Lyrics and with Borges on an ordinary evening in Buenos Aires. If you'd like to connect with Willis or learn more about his work, you can go to Willis Barnstone at willisbarnstone.org, or you can find out more about him through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I am Phil Cousineau. You are listening to New Dimensions Radio. I'm speaking with Willis Barnstone, author of innumerable books, including many memoirs such as With Borges on an Ordinary Evening in Buenos Aires. Willis, I love a quote of yours from your ABC of translation in which you write, Good translation is as essential to a hungry reader in a decent bookstore in our global village. I was thinking of that and mulling over the word translation, and again, loving word origins, going back to this notion that during the Middle Ages, translation actually referred to the tradition of trading relics. Oh? If a cathedral was built, it Mm -hmm. was required by church tradition to have a relic. 
So uh, in the age of cathedral building, as they were rising all across the continent, there was suddenly a marketplace yes. for relics. Yes. And that meant people s- stepped into that breach. Yes. And they began to trade relics from one country, one diocese to another. Yeah. And that was called translation. Of carrying course. across. Over. Yeah, yeah. Carrying over. That's mm-hmm. the notion of it. Mm-hmm. And metaphorically, that's how I'm thinking of your works as well, carrying the relics of words, fossilized language, as Emerson once described yes. poetry, mm-hmm. across one border and also from one time yes. to the other. Yes. How does that feel to you as an image? Well, I, I like it. Uh, metaphor is the Greek word for translate metaphoros, metaphora, and it's... Uh, when I got to Greece for the first time in 1949 and I saw that sea and I couldn't believe it. I woke at dawn. It was stormy off the coast of the Peloponnesus. And I looked and I looked and it seemed like the inside of a purple grape. And then I realized that Homer had talked about the wine blue sea a while ago. And I saw the coast, and Greece was poor, 10 years of war. And the Germans had had starved the country, taking all the food for their armies. People, 13% of the people died of starvation, but they were now coming back, and there were motorcycles pulling trucks, and each of them had the word metaphora, meaning moving. That was the word for not moving relics, but moving anything you wanted. I said to come to a country where metaphor is is the basic wallboard of the world. Who can fail here? And did you begin translating then? No. Someone wrote a dissertate, a, a master's thesis on the things I didn't do once. I was very flattered. <laughs> And that person also included things that Merwin didn't do, but it was, no, I, I, I had once translated a poem by Antonio Machado as an undergraduate at Bowdoin College in Maine, and where, by the way, I, I wrote my first poem one midnight, after midnight, in the middle of a snowy night, and had no idea I would be a poet for life until I wrote it came down the next day, and I fortunately had good friends, a, a, a Dane, a Czech, and a Frenchman who told me ideas that made me drunk with vanity, and I never stopped. <laughs> Have you noticed the name of the new subway system in Athens? What is it called? Metaphoros. Oh, right, Meta. <laughs> Well, that's, that's good. <laughs> Again, getting carried away. That, that's yes, the notion. Yeah. You're moving from one corner of Athens of to the course, other. You're yeah, being carried. Yeah, yeah. In language, we're being carried by metaphor. As a translator, yes. we have to often find not just the literal meaning of the words, but mm-hmm. the metaphor. You've also written an ABC of translation, something quite intimate. I, I'm charmed by this notion. Translation is friendship between two poets, an intimate union that demands love, art, and working with a foreign word. No Francois Villon's song in French, and the cello of his ballad will haunt you for life. That's absolutely true. I didn't make up because I must have read that from, from eternal scripture someplace. 
Yes, it's absolutely true. Why haunt? When I was doing my book on Antonio Machado, the translation and study, um, I asked John Dos Passos if he could write an introduction, which he did. And he wrote a beautiful thing, which I've never forgotten. He said, you know, when you go to a country, the best way to learn the language is to get a, a bag of songs or poems. They're shorter. You can learn them more quickly, and you'll never forget them. And I, I think that's a way of not only understanding the people, but being able to speak as they think and sing. Nothing is better than that. Now, I can't remember why I'm saying this. We're, we're talking about the urge for you to translate, but also, let's keep moving with that, seg keep segueing into one of the things that gives me hope in our yes, benighted yes, times, yes. and that is the surge in translation. If I'm not mistaken, there is more translation happening now than at any time in human history. More languages, more mm. poetry, pieces of history, memoirs, biography. Yes. And that suggests that maybe we won't demonize people mm. who we don't understand if we can read more of course. from them, yeah. from their own hearts and souls. I have very negative feelings about most translations, alas. But uh, because in the end, uh, we spend a lot of time badly translating things. Uh, you don't have to be a poet in your own right. Fitzgerald, Robert Fitzgerald, I think, was the best translator in the 20th century. He wasn't a first-rate poet, but he was supreme poet when he translated. And I think that unless one is has the secrets of beauty unless something sings, which is also part of the original. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother. You have to be faithful to, to the quality of, 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 of the quality of quality, if I can be redundant. And I feel that's frequently not done, especially in translating poetry. Either they go too far and totally recreate it, which is okay if you're Robert Lowell and doing an imitation because he does it marvelously. But I do believe it should be a love pact in which both people speak and both people are poets talking to each other. How important is it for people to branch out from their own neighborhood, so to speak, neighborhood of language, mm -hmm. and read people of other times and other cultures? Well, it is for many, many reasons. For your own salvation, you're not caught in one personality. We are many people, and I know when I think in modern Greek, when I think in French, when I think in Spanish, I'm a very different person. And even when I used to, to speak bad Chinese, always with a dictionary in one hand, uh, I... I had a very different personality. So it's, it's the most broadening thing we can do to make us, as uh, Wendell Wilkie would say, one world. Global citizens of some kind. Yeah. There's translation, and then there's also restoration mm -hmm. or revision. What was the impulse for you into providing for us a Gnostic? How different... <laughs> Is it for us to have these texts, which, which you were writing, gives a primacy to knowledge and personal experience? 
Well, I, I always have been very fond of the Gnostics. First of all, having been exposed to the Quakers uh, who were into light, L-I-G-H-T, and the notion that we have an inner spark, all of this is pure Quakerism. And you may not find an external God, but you can maybe find salvation in the mind, and then you connect worldly with all light in the world. I found that marvelous. And I also love the Gnostics because Eve is our hero rather than our villain. Uh, Eve uh, gave us knowledge. Gnosis, Gnostic, means knowledge. And unfortunately, in most religions, knowledge is the enemy rather than the friend. Uh, It happened in the Hebrew Bible. It happens in the Christian Bible. It happens in all Bible. You're supposed to have faith, not knowledge. The Gnostics believe you should know. That is good. Is knowledge opposed to faith? That's another question which I think I have an opinion on. But you see, if you use faith to mean this is the truth and so forth and so on, but usually faith and knowledge are deadly enemies. And that is the problem with most religions, that there is an animosity between what appears to be true and what you believe should be true. At the, at the risk of a bad pun, was there a Genesis moment for you reading the Gnostic work in which you felt inspired to actually dedicate a great deal of time to translating for us or restoring? I don't know. I, yes, I, I guess it was all kind of silly, but I undertake things usually that I know nothing about. And I was in New York and... Uh, I had some kind of a NAH fellowship, and it was, I knew that there was something between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We actually have thousands of pages. We call them intertestual, intertestamental scripture or pseudoepigrapha, technical words. And I knew it existed, but didn't know much about it because I'm almost autistically an amateur at everything. And so I went to the Brooklyn Library and did about an afternoon's research. I came up with the title of The Other Bible, sold it in one afternoon to three major publishers. And I mean, a friend of mine at Bantam Books put the word out. And, uh, and then half of it was Gnostic. And at that point, because of who knows why, I had that. And then when I read about the Gnostic scriptures and the Gospel of Judas, which, uh, you know, they made a big fuss when the Gospel of Judas came out, but Borges knew all about that. In the 1950s, he had the three ways of Judas, that Judas was the only person who Jesus believed in. And, and we know, not because we had the original Gospel of Judas, but because Augustine and Irenaeus and other church fathers had written in criticizing it abundantly about it and gave us all the information we found when we found the original texts, which we did about 
10 years ago, and my colleague, with whom I did five books, actually, of Gnosticism, Marvin Meyer, who alas died of melanoma a few years ago, much younger than I am, uh, he was the main translator of that book, The Gospel of Judas. Number one bestseller, helped by being put on the Vatican immediately, but on the index, yes. I'm speaking with poet translator, religious scholar, and religious gadfly. Willis Barnstone, author of dozens of books, including most recently the Gnostic Bible, the restored New Testament, and the poems of Jesus. If you would like to connect with Willis Barnstone or know more about his work, you can go to his website, willisbarnstone.org, or you can find out more about him through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I am Phil Cousineau, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm speaking with Willis Barnstone, the author of innumerable books, including The Restored New Testament and the Gnostic Bible, and a wonderful memoir with Borges on an ordinary evening in Buenos Aires. Willis, let's talk about The Restored New Testament. It's an amazing literary and historical version of the New Testament, and I think it's the attempt, right, was to preserve what you've called the original melody or the original song, the original poetry of the Bible. And the effort is also important because of your attempt to restore the original Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew names that you felt were missing. Why is it important to restore the New Testament? Well, the New Testament is thought of as a European invention. People have names, depending on the country, like Paul, when his real name was Shaul, Saul in modern English. They have names like James, which is actually Jacob. The Germans are much better in keeping the original names. We have Johann for John, Sebastian Bach. And uh, we don't realize that these were all Jews. There's no one in the Old Testament except for Pontius Pilate, who was not a Jew. What else were they? Uh, In Handel, where you find in the Messiah some of the vilest words against the Jews, they venerate Jesus' circumcision which is described in Luke. It doesn't make sense. However, if you understand when you hear the names that Mary was really Miriam, Maria is the Greek translation of Miriam, when you realize that uh, Jesus was Yeshua or Joshua, and etc., then it gives a different cast to it. And so after a few We tend now into modern translation, we translate, we don't say, uh, well, some people say Canton, but Guangzhou we normally say now. 
in Italy, the city where Modigliani, the painter, was born is Livorno. But for years, in all the English maps, it was called Leghorn. I think we can call it Livorno. That's not beyond the linguistic capacity of an, even, an Englishman. So we're doing better in doing that. And it also means, well, it means we will no longer be fooled into thinking that Christianity was not an early Jewish religion. It was for centuries. Paul was from was a Pharisee, very proud to come from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, the big debates in the early years were between Paul and the other apostles. They said, you're straying from the Hebrew Bible. You must be orthodox. And Paul said, look, there are three things we have to do if we... People are doing that these days. We have to get rid of circumcision. And he went back to Leviticus and said, the, it's pretty grotesque to say it, but the circumcision of the heart is more important than of the body. Well, of course, he was using it metaphorically, but it, it's still painful even in translation to hear that. And he said, we have to be able to work on the Sabbath because it's good as any other day. And the idea of the food uh, restrictions was purely a matter of health. We don't need it anymore. If we are going to get rid of circumcision, health, uh, foods, and uh, uh, etc., then we will be able to spread our word. Their word was actually spread because the Romans destroyed uh Israel in 70, the war, 66 to 70, and dispersed the Jews and the Christians all over. Otherwise, they would probably have been more or less forgotten religions. Both of them were wildly proselytizing. And so, instead of being an insular book that might have been like a child in, I don't know, Iowa, picking up the Book of the Dead from Tibet, it became a world religion. Yes. Often strange things happen to, to change the world. How has the book been received? Have you lectured at major universities? Has the I book- gave a talk recently at Harvard, which cost me part of an eye, uh, on the Jews and the Christians. Is Jesus a Jew? Is Jesus a Christian? Is God a Jew? Is God a Christian? Um, yes, uh, the New York Review of Books was very kind to me. Frank Kermode uh, wrote his last piece. He called it a heroic achievement. Uh, he, he's our best biblical scholar. I must say he died shortly afterwards, so I feel a little guilty. Uh, I don't know. Yes, I, it's been better received than it deserves, but uh, it's an important book, and it's a literary book. Uh, there was an extravagant review in Library Journal which said this is the, the most important translation since the King James, and we hope the future it will hold up as such. So it went to my head. I've been drunk ever since. <laughs> Well, I, I don't drink, by the way. <laughs> I, I like our, our dear friend Houston Smith's distinction between spirituality and religion. He says the difference is the religion gives you community and traction. 
with your spiritual beliefs. So I hope this book gets some traction in the real world. I'd like to turn now to another aspect of your prolific work, and that is as memoirist. Yes. And to launch us there, I'd like to begin with something that I just, a photograph that I just saw of you walking with Jorge Borges on the streets of Buenos Aires a yes. number of years ago, locked in arms with the wonderful blind poet. There's such a, a charge of intimacy and respect in that photograph. Oh, yeah. Could you describe your life and what compelled you to actually write it as a memoir, your life with Borges? Well, I wrote it 10 years afterward. I was in Guatemala, and I wrote the first chapter in about 10 days. These things happen. You never know when the flow comes, but when it comes, you have to have a pen or a damn good memory. Uh, I, I, I wanted to do it because I realized that the anecdotes, and I had the material, and I had lots of recordings, uh, were were necessary, and it was a marvelous, marvelous time doing it. It was not the first memoir I wrote, uh, but I think it was the last one, although I've written another unpublished one, yes. The first one uh, was about my first five years in Europe, 19, um, and the second one was about We Jews and Blacks and with Komanyaka. I, I love doing memoir. And then that led me to prose. I was asked by a company to write a brief 20-page life uh, for one of these big encyclopedias. So I gave them 150 pages. They paid me twice as much. And I did it carefully and realizing that was going to be half the book. And that started me. And like anything else, you know, one becomes a victim of circumstance. And I am a circumstantial villain and victim. Do you have any models in terms of writing memoir? Thoreau, Rousseau, Annie Dillard? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I really don't think so. It, I just did my best. I, I didn't have anyone in mind. But we always have everybody in mind. But I was not... I am much more aware when I write poetry or fiction who has inspired me, but, but the memoirs, no. When you were teaching creative writing and literature all of those years at Indiana University, right, did you ever recommend that students read biographies of great writers? Did that ever come up? No, and, 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 and the truth is that, alas, I, I taught creative writing only when I was on leave because Indiana, which treated me very well, was also... Uh, very, very territorial. I was in comparative literature and Spanish literature, and hence I was never able to teach creative writing. I, I'm pretty good at it. The closest thing they let me do is teach translation, which was part of the creative writing department. But I, I, I'm glad I was not allowed because I like, I think I'm a good editor of other people's work, but it was much better for me to read and try to speak about other writers. I'm not very good about speaking about prose writers because I don't have the habit, but I, I, I have written a book of short stories. I love short stories. I'd like to talk also about collaboration. Mm -hmm. You have 
an unusual track record of writing with your children, translating with your son, Tony, and your daughter, Aliki. Mm-hmm. But you've also collaborated with your wife, right? Yes, yes. Can you talk about what that is like? Well, it's wonderful. It's just wonderful. I mean, in Spanish, there's an expression which says, cuatro ojos ven más que dos, which means four eyes see better than two. And I think for writing, four eyes see better than two. Why not? Can you tell the listeners at home what you've collaborated on with them? Well, with my daughter, we did a book of women poets, which is a big, what is it, 800-page book now of poets from antiquity to now. She was a freshman at, at Brown College at the time, and her picture was in Time magazine. It was very successful and still in print. And it hit, it sold instead of that, that copy of, um, of, of, that reviewed her book or our book uh, came out. And instead of selling 9 million copies, as Time did, it sold, sold 11 and a half million because John Lennon was killed that weekend. And his face was on the cover, and there was the story. So that was a very, very sad thing. I remember I was in Pittsburgh giving a talk on St. John of the Cross at University of Cincinnati, and, uh, and we both kind of wept on the phone about John Lennon. And we still weep about John Lennon. And what you told me about, how do you get to America? Could you repeat that? <laughs> Yeah, there's a wonderful story. When uh, the Beatles came to New York for the first time, a reporter asked, how do you find America? And John Lennon leaned across the other three Beatles and said, turn left at Greenland. (laughs) What do you recommend to people um, who are trying to collaborate? It can rip families and, and friendships asunder. Do you have a brief recommendation? Well, I guess with any problem you have with people, flatter them. And you'd be surprised that you can walk on chocolate and taste it at the same time. Uh, I, 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 you know, it's very important not to be personally upset. Argue about things, but not people. Wonderful advice. I'm speaking with writer, poet, translator, memoirist, teacher, painter, and sometime photographer, Willis Barnstone. If you'd like to know more about Willis, know about his work, you can go to his website. WillisBarnstone.org, or you can learn more about him and his work through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I am Phil Cousineau, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm speaking with Willis Barnstone, author of innumerable books, including many memoirs, such as with Borges on an Ordinary Evening in Buenos Aires. Willis, tell us more about writing memoirs. Well, it happens. It happens, and you're happy when you do it. You have no idea you can do it until you do it, like most things in life, and then you simply obey the voice. And like Chinese poetry, it's overheard in your head, and you give it what form you need. But the best things are those which are overheard when you hear voices in your head, and you can be an obedient pen. Dante said he wrote nothing. He just obeyed. He obeyed the voices. Borges was about seven in the morning. Two of us were going to go to the Andes uh, on a trip together. And, and he was all excited because he was awakened by a bomb near next door. It was during the Dirty War. And it caused him to remember his dream. And it was a different dream. And this is what he wrote. And this had a big effect because this story gave him the title of his last posthumous book. And it's very complicated, but every last thing he did seemed to be related to this marvelous, invraisemblable tale. I wasn't awakened by my usual nightmare, but by a bomb a few buildings away. I couldn't get back to sleep. So I conceived the plot of a short story. I had to do it in my head, the beginning and end, they come in a flash. Later, I fill in the middle. I was tramping through downtown London, looking for a bed and breakfast place. Above a chemist's shop, I found a shabbily respectable place and quickly arranged for my room, encouraged to do so by the owner, who invited me to afternoon tea. When this tall, ugly, intense man had me alone, he said, I have been looking for you. What he had up his sleeve, I couldn't tell, but his glare almost paralyzed me. In those days, at least in the hour of my dream, I could perfectly see. What do you want from me? Just a thousand pounds. You can't get what I don't have, I said to him defiantly. I'm not here to steal. I'm here to make you the happiest man in the world, and only because you are worthy of it. I have just acquired Shakespeare's memory. If you're willing to forget who sold it to you, or that you ever laid eyes on me or stayed in my rooms, I will go ahead with the transaction. I took his bundle of papers, read one glorious, lucent page, picked up the phone and wired Buenos Aires for my savings, cleaning out my miserly lifetime account. By then, I could not remember a word of the burning text of Shakespeare's memory, and the multiple shocks woke me up. I came out of my Shakespeare business quick, clean, and empty-headed, except for the story. His last book was called Shakespeare's Memory. It's a transportive piece. It re reminds me of you citing Emily Dickinson in your epigraph to the Poets of Ecstasy. To learn the transport by the pain as blind men learn the sun. What we, did I say? <laughs> in your epigraph... 
to your marvelous book, The Poets of Ecstasy, yes. from Sappho to Borges, yes. as a matter of fact, you use um, Emily Dickinson, one of our great poets, a couple of lines from her poems where she writes, to learn the transport by the pain as blind men learn the sun. Oh, how beautiful. How beautiful Emily Dickinson is. She's a constant surprise. She's certainly... There's no greater poet in the world than Emily Dickinson. There are many people who are, deserve that epithet, but she's certainly marvelous. You, you never, she bowls you over all the time. The connection for me between the two is this notion of transport, of being carried away mm -hmm. by poetry, by the epiphany, by spiritual experience. Yes. And the blindness. And the blindness. Well, the blindness is obvious because you have to know nothing in order to see. You have to see nothing. I mean, Plato has it in the in, in the famous tale of the cave. You have to, you go out, you're blinded ultimately by the sun. At that moment, you can see all. We know that. It, it's, it's simply a psychological notion. If you see with remembered thought, you will not see. If you see fresh you will see the first day of the world and even the day before the first day. Or perhaps see, as you again in that mm -hmm. same book, cite John Locke, whether that which we call ecstasy be not dreaming with the eyes open. You only dream when your eyes open, even when they're shut. It has to be that way. Machado always was dreaming with his eyes open. I think uh, Pierre Mondrian said the same thing. I paint in a dream, and I want people to look at my work as if they're dreaming with the eyes open. It's a theme that seems to cross over in the different art disciplines. And ecstasy, to me, seems, is an element that crisscrosses all of your work. Is, yes. is that true? Well, it is. I, 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 I'm going to publish a, a new book, uh, one of these biggies, which will be called Ways of Ecstasy from Eve to Jack Kerouac. I, I, I'm, I used to know Jack Kerouac. We used to dance Greek things together. He said it was great fun. And what a tragic end he had to his life. But uh, Jack Kerouac, the son of Jack Kerouac. By the way, I mentioned it, I'm sorry, because Jack Kerouac wrote the first version of On the Road in French, in Joal, in Quebecois. It was called Sur le Chemin. <laughs> Not many people know that. They said he wrote it all in one, seven years revising. He did it in 20 days or two days, whatever it is. A lot of nonsense. But he worked very, in a very disciplined way. And Nel Mezzo del Camino di Nostra Vita, the first line of Dante, that's what inspired him for the, on the road, in the middle of the road of our life. I love him even more. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. One of your descriptions of the word ecstasy, the state of ecstasy, mm. the experience of it, is elsewhere. Yes. And I love that because it also reminds me of Hugh Kenner, if you remember the, the great critic. Yes. He, one of his, I believe his last book was called The Elsewhere Community. Mm -hmm. And he felt that that was one of the things that brought creative people together from all around the world. Of course. That often we have more in common with other people who are creating than we might have with our own friends and family. Is there a longing in creative people for this elsewhere state of mind? Well, I think, Sarah, it's the notion of make it new, be different, and all that stuff. Uh, uh, ecstasy means 
being not stasis, which means standing still. In Greece, when you stop for a bus, you go to the stasis, which means the place you stand. And we, we always have to stand elsewhere to see. It, it's, not, it, it's just a trick of psychology, trick of the mind, and it works beautifully. You've named a few of what you call the masters and mistresses of ecstasy, a marvelous phrase. St. Teresa of Avila, Sankara, Riesbrook, the mystic, St. Catherine, St. John of the Cross, Jack Kerouac. <laughs> what would it give us to read, have a steady diet of the ecstatic poets? I guess you'd puke, but I better, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, ice cream can be had in only in a certain amount. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm forcing the joke there. I... I, I, I think we, you can't live forever on the peak of ecstasy, but when Jack Kerouac was saying that he called Climb Tamalpais at about four in the morning, and Jack was saying, I climbed Tamalpais, I got to the top, and I, I saw it, I had Satori, and Corso was by him, he said, you saw bullshit, Kerouac. He, and Kerouac responded, I saw bullshit, you're right. So, people are moderate. They're moderate. Then he later used it in a book title, Satori in Paris. I didn't know that. Yeah, he went back to Paris to go to the Bibliothèque Nationale to look up the family roots of the Kerouacs. Oh. And he had another epiphany or a Satori moment (laughs) there as he was able to track his people back Uh, to Brittany. A very tragic, wonderful—he was reading a plays by Chekhov when he died— and he suddenly vomited blood. It was in Florida, and his last words were, holy shit. But he was by then quite wasted. He was in his mid-40s. He never recovered. There's often a, a dark ending for people who are trying to follow the ecstatic for an entire lifetime. But there's also this lure. It's a kind of gravitational force that's pulling us towards what you call the secret wisdom. And you, you've described it as deriving from the dark night of contemplation. Mm-hmm. The night of dark contemplation is St. John of the Cross's La Noche Oscura del Alma, the dark night of the soul. And it is in that night of the dark soul that he rises to the light of the sky. St. John of the Cross, his father was a converso, that is to say, the Jews who remained in in, in, in Spain, about half of them remained, and his father was a silk merchant. His name was Yepes, from the word Haifa, and his wife was a Moor. Her, her Spanish name was Caterina uh, Rodriguez. So it was nice to think that a Jew and the Moor gave us Spain's greatest poet. What's the role of the poet today? The role of the poet is to sing and to speak. It's important to think politically as well. I mean, all poetry in the past is almost exclusively lyrical, as it must be, of politics or religion. Well, thank you for a transportive conversation, Willis. It's really been marvelous. I've been speaking with Willis Barnstone, one of the most prolific and acclaimed writers and teachers of our time. He's the author of several classics, including Ancient Greek Lyrics, and the new restored New Testament, mm-hmm. the poems of Jesus, and a wonderful book of poetry, Dawn Cafe of Paris. If you'd like to connect with Willis Barnstone or know more about his work, you can go to his website, willisbarnstone.org. Or you can find him through the New Dimensions website, 
newdimensions.org. I am Phil Cousineau. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3535. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.